chapter 15. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find this on pages 1412 on to 1400. Luke chapter 15, we're going to be reading this chapter in its entirety. So all 32 verses. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Hear now the word of God from Luke 15. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right, marry and be glad. Your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and found. Beloved people of God, we this passage now, verses 11 through 32, with this theme. Jesus demonstrates the proper attitude and rebukes a bad attitude toward a repenting lost son. So Jesus demonstrates the proper attitude and rebukes a bad attitude towards a repenting lost son. Now, as we've already noted, Luke 15 contains three related parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And there are similarities and differences with regard to these parables. All three show the joy that comes with the recovery of that which was lost. Sheep, coin, son. The first two illustrate how the Pharisees, these religious leaders of old, should have behaved. This one, how they did behave. Now notice the situation then. It says a certain man, Jesus says, Verse 11, a certain man had two sons. Of course, this refers to God. This is a reference to the, the Father, God the Father, if you will. And, it's, and what is being portrayed here then are two different types of people. The Pharisees, on the one hand, the ones that were self-righteous, the ones that were just in their, in their own views, and the publicans or the tax collectors and the sinners on the other hand. So, with that as a background then, let's look at, uh, starting in verse 12, let's look at the prodigal. Now, growing up, I always wondered what in the world is a prodigal. Sounds almost like parable. It's not. Prodigal, one who is wasteful. Someone who is a spendthrift. Someone who just burns through money. Okay? Waste his living. Waste his resources. That's what a prodigal is, and especially in this context, one who is fairly rich. 
course, poor folks who do the same thing. But here it's someone who, was, who had a lot of goods, a lot of wealth, and he just burns through all of it. So as we look then at the prodigal, the prodigal or the, the lost son, he becomes the lost son, does he not? Because he wanders astray. The first thing you see in that regard is the self-will, the self-will. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, this is a classic kind of phrase. We see other examples in literature in terms of this. But basically, it's an expression in this case of irresponsibility. His self-will manifests itself in the desire to have his share at once, to do with it what he wants. He's interested only in temporal happiness, that is to say, living for the moment. And that's what's going to lead to his prodigality, his wastefulness. It is basically a hedonistic impulse. Hedonism, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. That's hedonism. That's living for the moment. That's giving yourself over to pleasure or happiness. His motives, then, are very quickly revealed by his conduct. He was weary, was he not, of his father's discipline and government. How many young people want to be free of their parents' rule? Okay? And so that's exactly what you find here. Just, I mean, this is, you know, up to date. Just think of many teenagers, not all, but many teenagers today. He wanted to get away as soon as possible where he could forget family and friends and where he would not be known. He's distrustful of his father's management, not believing that he really knows. And he's also proud of himself and self-sufficient in his own eyes. By the way, I want to mention again, as I've mentioned before, that I am relying upon commentators such as A.B. Bruce and and uh, Laidlaw and uh, Richard Chavani Trench, among others. But he's proud of himself and self-sufficient in his own eyes. And of course, this is the way of waywardness. This is the desire to do one's own thing. Let me do my own thing. That's the cry of the 1960s, isn't it? It's the cry of the 2020s. Self-will, of course, is the path of selfishness. And it is the express way of rebellion. I was going to say it's the, uh, it's the I-85 of rebellion. The only problem there is that many times the traffic is at a crawl. But think of an express way, not at rush hour. It's the express way, it's the free way of rebellion. This idea of, of waywardness and of self-will. And notice something else here that's kind of interesting. Is the parental soft-heartedness. Isn't that interesting? The request could have been granted or refused. And the granting of the request is an indication of the way of providence which often permits free reign. Because many times, God will say, you want to do this? go right ahead. 
God, as Romans 1 says, many times will give people up to their own sin. God may give us what we want. And so as we see the prodigal then, the prodigal son, we first of all see the self-will. Then secondly, verse 13, we see the folly. For not long afterwards, he actually went away. This is symbolic then of a person wandering away from God. You remember Psalm 14? The fool is saying in his heart, there surely is no God. And even people who who are not formally atheists nevertheless can act as if that is the case. He did indeed live foolishly. He scattered his wealth. He lived in sensual indulgence, every form of sensual gratification, including sexual gratification. He played the fool totally, and he continued his loose living till all his means were gone. Now note that history abounds with stories like this one. I remember, I don't know if it's still on the radio or not, but there was a radio broadcast from a a Chicago mission called Pacific Garden Mission, the broadcast called Unshackled. And I remember listening, maybe some of you all remember that, I don't know if it's on anymore, but I remember listening to that. I can still hear the organ music, you know, as it comes on and So it it would tell the stories of people who were on drugs, or alcohol, or living in sin, or a life of crime. And so history then abounds with stories. That's what Pacific Guard Mission, for over 100 years there in downtown Chicago, helping people who are living lives of prodigality, of wastefulness, of sensualism. And, of course, what we find here, then, in terms of the spiritual application, how does, this, how does this apply spiritually? Well, first of all, what is the root, the root issue? It is people casting off the favor of God. That's what it is. Casting off the favor of God in the picture of the parable here. Abandoning their interest in Christ. We can all be tempted in that regard but then actually abandoning their interest in Christ. Resisting the stirrings of the Spirit. So not enjoying the favor of the Father, abandoning their interest in Christ, resisting the Holy Spirit, and then drowning out the admonitions of conscience. How many times have you and I sinned? And before we did it, we thought, oh, maybe this is really okay even though I know it's really not. How many times have you and I done that? And so self-will and folly. And just like the prodigal, when we do those things, we too are foolish. And then notice the misery, verses 14 through 16. The first part of this is, in verse 14, it says, when he had spent all, there was no money left. He was bankrupt. Not only that, but it was intensified because of the famine. No bread. See, there's a correlation between physical and moral evil. And you know, part of God's plan to bring this young man to his senses was to send a famine. You know, we often pray, God, 
have mercy on us, have mercy on our land and so forth and relieve the, the famine and, and so forth. And yet at the same time, we must recognize that it may not be God's plan to do that. It may be God's plan to continue the famine. We could see food shortages in this country. Look at the shelves, the bare shelves that have been there recently. Look at the problems in Europe, in the Netherlands, with regard to food production. Look at Sri Lanka. Look at Eritrea. Look at numerous places where there is literal starvation going on throughout the world. And so sometimes God sends these things to, to remind people who really is in charge. And that when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, it's because we recognize we have forfeited all right to our daily bread because of our sin. And of course this can apply then to individuals as well. Sometimes people not only may not have any money, maybe they don't have any food. And yet God can use that to bring about repentance. Notice the degradation. He began to be in need, we are told. This is not something he was accustomed to. He, he probably started begging. And moreover, in terms of the degradation, he was in the service of another. Notice it says here that he forced himself, he uh, forced himself, as it were, uh, into, uh, uh, into that. Uh, he joined himself to a citizen of that country. But his job in that regard was most abhorrent for a Jew especially. First of all, working for a Gentile owner, but secondly, tending the swine, the pigs. This was not a fun job or anything that a respectable Jew would have done. And then again, notice the hunger itself. He was craving to fill his belly. No one thought to give him the swine's feed, for all had so little. Now, in the King James Version, it'll say husks. Here, you notice... In the New King James, most other translations, pods or carob pods. And that's really what is indicated here. It's a fruit. So it's not like a, a husk, like you know, like the corn huskers of Nebraska, right? Getting all the the outside of the corn. No, this was a fruit in a shape like a bean pod, but larger and more curved. It had a hard, dark outside and a sweet taste. It could even be used in the making of wine, for example. But it was still for poor people. But there was no bread. This is what he was filling his belly with. This is the, what, the, what the swine, what the pigs were eating, and what impoverished people would eat. Now there is spiritual application, of course, to this. First of all, notice when he talks about him being a servant, he really, the picture is that of being a servant of sin, laboring for that which satisfies not. Laboring for that which satisfies not. How many times have we seen this in Scripture? Those that, you know, uh, go after things that are, that are not really satisfying. Um, Isaiah uh, 40, 
44. Isaiah 44 and verse 20. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? The lie is the idol, you say. He feeds on ashes. How many of you would like to eat ashes tonight? He feeds on ashes. He labors, you see. The person that is a sinner labors for that which satisfies not. He craves it. And this is, is this not true? Whether we talk about alcohol, whether we talk about drugs, whether we talk about sex, whether we talk about the applause of the world, wanting fame and fortune, is this not the case? That the more that people want those things, the less satisfied they are. Isaiah 55 and verse 1 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you have no money, come buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. But then verse 2, Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. So he was a servant, and the spiritual, what's being portrayed here in terms of the spiritual reality, he was a servant of sin. But also, notice he was in a state of madness. He was in a state of madness. You see what it, what it says there? Um, verse 17, but when he came to himself. In other words, what had happened before he came to himself? Well, he was nuts. He, was, he had gone crazy, as it were. He was mad. He was in a state of madness. And so it is, my friends. When we live apart from God, it is a state of madness because it is a state of rebellion. And yet, by the grace of God, notice, notice what happened but when he came to himself. And so this spiritual deliverance then enables him to think clearly, logically, and in a godly way. And so as we look at the prodigal then, we see the self-will and the folly and the misery, even to the point of his being out of his mind. But now look with me at the repentance. We see this, first of all, in verses 17 through 19. Here are the beginnings of repentance. The beginning of self, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my sin against heaven before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. It's the beginning of repentance. You see, he thinks about, he begins to regain his sanity, and he thinks about his former position and happiness and his pride. He remembers how the servants back home, the servants, not just his not just the family members, the servants back home have plenty to eat. And he is perishing from hunger. And again, I want to mention one more time how often physical misery is used by our Lord to bring people to a place of repentance. Or not. In other words, many people 
who are hungry go on being hungry and hungry spiritually. But many times God uses misery, physical misery, to bring them to a place of repentance. So here we see the beginnings of repentance and then the plan, he says, that I will go home. And he will say, I will confess that I have offended God and man, heaven and my father, my earthly father. God and man. And he will beg to have a servant's position. And of course, that's all that's really necessary. That's all that's necessary. I mean, is this not what the, what the psalmist says? I'd rather dwell in my God's house than to live in tents of wickedness. I'd rather be a servant in the house of the Lord than to have a palace, if you will. And so that's the important thing, is to be in God's presence and to be right with him. And maybe you today need to be right with him. So he will beg then, as, a, as one who is repentant, he will beg to have a servant's position. Notice then the action or the actions. So he's resolved to do this, verses 20a and 21. And so we are told here, and he arose, verse 20a, and came to his father. There we have the actual repentance. He's resolved to do it, but now he's doing it. He went to his father. And interestingly, did you notice that he dropped the last part of what he said he was going to say when he says, make me like one of your hired servants? He wasn't even pleading for that. When he actually went there, he only owned his guilt. And it's been suggested that this represents a change from a repentance of fear to that of love. My friends, how many times is this true of us? How many times is this true of us? That we, we repent out of fear, perhaps, but not out of love for God, and that's the only true repentance. So, that's the picture then of the prodigal. Now we see the father. Notice what the father is doing. Notice what the father is doing. The father is waiting. And in that regard, as we paint this picture, let's think of the longing. Think of how he's been thinking of his son all these long years. We don't know how long, but however many hope deferred has led to his being heartsick and weary. The father's been watching the road for his return in his house, in the field. He would turn loving eyes often to the distant road. And one day, he sees someone much changed in appearance. He has the bearing of a beggar. Perhaps he trudges along like an, like an old man, weak, footsore, 
but there's something familiar about his walk. Something familiar as he sees him from a distance that reminds him of his son. And then he recognizes that it is his son. And so what does he do? Well, we see the love and the compassion. It rises instantaneously. It sweeps aside all before it. There's no momentary struggle between love and resentment. No, he goes. He went to his son. He ran, we are told. He fell on his neck and he kept on kissing him. Just like in Luke chapter 7 when that woman who was a sinner was kissing the feet of Jesus. And so, and, and that's what's indicated here. He not only was kissing him, but he kept on kissing him. And all of this, all of this, what is being shown to us is God taking us into his bosom and his giving us the assurance of welcome and the seal of pardon. Now, in that, in that context, then, the son makes confession. But notice the father stops him before he is able to ask for a place as a hired servant. Even after the assurance of pardon, there is willingness to confess. You know, the more we experience, the more willing we are to confess. Again, Luke 7, he who, uh, you know, he who was forgiven much, loves much. Now, upon arriving home, orders are given. Notice the provision of status. The best robe, a ring placed on his hand, shoes on his feet. Slaves would have gone barefoot. And food and fellowship. The fattened calf was saved for special occasions and eating it to, and they all were eating it together at this festive banquet, this party, if you will. But more than that, there was acceptance and adoption as a son. The son was willing to come back as a servant. And the father takes him back as a son. Did you notice the pairs that were here? Did you notice that? Um, and um, did you notice the pairs that uh, where uh, he says... Um, uh, verse uh, 24, where the father says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And certainly that was according to the appearance that this was the case. Like the lost sheep. You see, we are dead to God when we are lost. When we're found. And so, Acceptance. And they all began to make merry. This involved music and dancing, the, the notion there of euphoria, of great joy, musically, and so forth. All of these things show the completeness of forgiveness and the depth of joy. And by the way, the joy that we've already seen in the first two parables now 
rises to the highest, the highest level. In other words, it builds the, the we can say the depth of joy, we can say the height of joy, maybe that's a better way of saying it. So it's, it's deep, but it's also high, it's like a mountain. So the, the height of joy, it builds to this climax. Well, now we come thirdly to the elder son. Oh my, the elder son. Now what was he like? He was dutiful and diligent. He was careful. He was plodding, one commentator said, uh, somewhat uninteresting perhaps. But in any case, he returns from being at work in the field. Undoubtedly, he's put in a good day's work. And he hears the noise of festivity, the music, the dancing. And he asks it concerning its meaning. He receives an honest, straightforward reply from the servant, and he then shows himself to be bitterly resentful. He became angry. He refused to go in. Notice his complaint. I have been faithful these many years, but you never me a kid so that I could feast with my friends. Notice he wanted to disown his brother. This son of yours, he's wasted your living with harlots. So how does the father respond to him? Well, he, he answers him in a very mild and gentle way. He, the father went out to meet him. He says, son, we might even say child, perhaps, but son, there's, there's an endearment here. Son, we had to rejoice over your brother, for he was lost and now is found. He did not suggest that this older brother, by complaining about not having a kid to a kidling, degraded himself to the level of a servant, nor people like to be for a party anyway. He doesn't say that. He tries to persuade him to come in. Now what's the real difficulty? The real difficulty is, is that this son, this elder son, looked only at the moral, legalistic side. The Pharisees were guilty of this. They worked for wages, like servants. But there was no understanding of God's fatherly grace. He refused to be hopeful that there had been genuine repentance. The Pharisees did not want to accept the others. And you know what's fascinating about this? It is now the elder son who becomes the lost son. That's the ironic thing. The, the parable could almost be entitled the lost sons. It's no longer the prodigal. It's the elder son that's outside of the party. The Pharisees, too, had become lost by excluding themselves from the banquet. Well, three points of application. The first is this. Repent. Repent. 
Now, in this regard, notice that there are different aspects, different emphases of lostness in these three parables. The straying sheep, he sort of wandered astray, dumb sheep. The lost coin, forgetful of his chief end, glorify God, he'd become useless. But the lost son, there's a plotting here. There is a, an evil-mindedness. There is a willfulness in his disobedience, in his lack of duty. He, reach, he no longer, he doesn't have right affection towards his father. He's a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God. He wants to banish God from his thoughts. As one commentator says, prayerless, irreligious, behaving as a runaway. And, you know, in this regard, then, it's good when you repent, it's good to consider what you will say to God, even as the prodigal thought over his confession. It's good to consider, to think, to think as you pray, as you think about your actions, your attitude. Notice also in terms of repentance, you must plead guilty. You must acknowledge your wastefulness of God's gifts. Sin is against heaven, as the prodigal recognizes. Not only is earthly father, I have sinned against heaven. Sin is against heaven. That is against the God who is high and lifted up. And you must therefore humbly acknowledge the forfeiture of all rights. But the true penitent will sue, as it were, will plead for admittance. Notice that faith is always tied to repentance. And faith will lead the trembling sinner to, in the belief that he will accept the sinner who is penitent. And this, of course, is a sign of love. It's a sign of love for the Father, a sign of love for his house. Are you today perhaps a wandering, rebellious son or daughter? Are you perhaps smug in self-righteousness? And so, notice then, first of all, repent. Secondly, show love and compassion for the lost. Parable says that the father began the rejoicing. And joy is the appropriate attitude taught by all three parables. God the father began the party. And we too must have a concern for the lost. And there must be an acceptance of prodigals when they return. When they return. When they repent. That's why notice the theme of the message today. The proper attitude towards a repenting son. And so repent, show love and compassion for the lost, and thirdly, rejoice in God's great grace. It is, my friends, universal. It is, it is to the degraded. It is to the down and outers. It is to those folks from the streets of Chicago who 
find their way into Pacific Garden Mission. Dare I say it is to those who come into churches here in Atlanta as well. It is universal. It goes to the degraded. It goes to the lost sons of Israel. It goes to the Gentiles. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And God's great grace consists even of a mild response to the elder brother. Son, was it not fitting? Was it not proper? You see, rejoice in God's great grace, but especially do so. Because Jesus is the true elder brother. You see, unlike the Pharisees who sat at home, so to speak, doing their duty, Jesus is the one who was sent by the Father to go look for the other son. He is the one whom the Father sent. And not only then for our example, but as our Savior, he came. He is the one who was sent into the world. He is the one who is the true elder brother in contrast to the Pharisees. That's the twist at the end. That's what that's the barb at the at the end. He, you see, is the one who came as our example, but also as our savior, because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that this message would be of sin here. Father, we confess our sins. We confess that we have not done as we ought. And so give us the grace, O God, to repent. Here, who has never put his trust in Christ, we pray that that person would be restless he or she believes in Jesus. The Lord, for thy people who are here, we pray, Lord, for thy comfort. May they indeed rest in Christ, the one who is the elder brother. We thank thee for this. Praise thee. In Jesus' name.